you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Today we have a most exceptional author on some brilliant folks, again, from Princeton University. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, folks from the Princeton University press on, uh, so thanks to them for sending us brilliant minds. And uh, we're going to be talking about some issues today uh, that are not only historical, but current as well. Uh, today we have the author, uh, Dan Rogers, on. He is the author of the book, uh, a City on a Hill, the story of America's famous lay sermon. Daniel T. Rogers, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, Dan Rogers is the Henry Charles Lay Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton University. He is a prize-winning teacher and the author of six prize-winning books on the history of American ideas, arguments, and assumptions and culture. His Age of Fracture, which won the coveted Bancroft Prize in American history in 2012, not only helped put the word fracture on the map as a description of the last 40 years of American history, but showed how the very idea of society began to fall after the 1970s. His latest book, A City on a Hill, available on paperback this fall, hones in on the history of one of the most iconic phrases in recent American politics, the claim that ever since their beginning Americans knew they were destined to be a model to the world. The book uncovers the myths behind that assumptions. It shows how a 17th century document's words were lost, how they were found again, and how they were filled with radical new meanings. Finally, and most importantly, it asks the phrase, city on a hill, what does it mean for us now? Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Dan? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good, good. And we got a chance to get your book and start reading it. Here, let me hold it up as a plug so that people can check it out. Beautiful book. Nice, uh, good thickness there with lots of good details. Uh, so give us your dot-coms, Daniel, so people can check you out on the interwebs. Uh, yeah, you can find me um, at Princeton University. Just check in there, look under the search engine, put a D in Rogers, and you'll find a biography and, and uh, links. And you go to Amazon.com and you can find all the books. They're still in print. Um, they're still selling, and I hope this one does too. Awesome sauce. I'm sure it will. It's a great book, and you've written quite a few few books. And like we talked about in the pre-show, I'd love to have you talk about uh, Come Back for Age of Fracture, even though it's an older book. I'd love to re-promote it because actually that's what I've been talking about with what's going on right now. This this coronavirus has opened up the fissures from the original fractures that we had in our society, and just everything seems to be breaking. <laughs> So, so this is pretty interesting because we've had some discussions uh, over some of the different book authors, a lot of stuff that uh, applies to book li- Black Lives Matter. Uh, a lot of people have referenced the shining in the city, the city on the hill, the shining city on the hill that uh, Reagan used a lot in his conversations. Uh, so let's talk about your book. What, what made you want to write this, uh, if you don't mind starting there? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things I, I uh, preach to students, readers, is that um, nations, nations are all kinds of things. They're governments, they're police forces, they're armies, but they're, they're also ideas. They're sets of things that people hold in their mind. They go and fight in a war. They fight for something more than just the, the fact that uh, they were told to do so. They fight because they imagine an America. And so hmm. they pay taxes or they don't pay taxes because of what they imagine about America. Uh, they're loyal to the country because of what they imagine about America. And that's true with every nation in the world. A nation's an idea. It's held together by all kinds of conversations and arguments and ideas. Um, and if that falls apart, the nation falls apart, as, as you know, happened once in the United States and happens all around the world. So I got interested in what, what would mean to take a particular phrase that had been so important in the making of the idea of America, city on a hill, and saying, okay, suppose we drill right down into the beginnings of that and the history of that. What would we find out about, about the nation? It turned out to be a fascinating story. 
Awesome sauce. And it really is because it's polit- in politics, it's been used a lot. Obama, uh, I think, used it at least once. Uh, Reagan, as we talked about in the pre-show, was using it a lot. Um, you begin the book by saying it's a book about a phrase and a story that has saturated American politics for the last 40 years. Um, I guess the phrase is, as a city on a hill, and what's the story behind it? Well, I can start by giving you uh, Barack Obama's version of it, mm-hmm. um, even though it was Ronald Reagan who, as we'll talk about, made it, made it, um, uh, I put it into circulation because Obama really caught um, the story, which I'll come back to talk about in a second. He was uh, in the, giving a commencement speech in Boston, 2016, and um, in the middle of it, he said, it was right here, it was right here, he said, in the waters around us where the American experiment began. It was right here that the earliest settlers dreamed of building a city on the hill, and the world watched, waiting to see if this improbable idea called America would succeed. That's a, that's a really interesting statement, partly because, you know, the American experiment didn't begin in Massachusetts, it came late, and partly because, as we'll go on to say, nobody was watching when the boats arrived in Massachusetts. But one thing did happen in that uh, voyage, or somewhere around the time of that voyage, it happened in 1630, when a group of English folk left England for what became New England, um, and somewhere along the line of the preparation for that voyage or in the voyage, I think that's not so likely, uh, the governor, the elected governor of that colony got up and gave a long, 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 long speech about um, what the operation was all about, what they were seeking in America, why they were going, et cetera, et cetera. And at the very end, he says, And we must know that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all the people are upon us. Uh, That's the story. Middle of the Atlantic, people kind of lost in a place where they don't know what the future is, but they already have this conviction that they're going to be a model to the world. Everybody's going to pay attention to them. And part of what makes that story so attractive and the phrase so attractive is that it seems to straighten out all of American history from this moment of beginning, so more or less, um, all the way to the present, to the great uh, power nation of, of the 21st century, uh, Americans have always known that they were going to be the world's ideal, the world's model. Straightens everything out. Um, and I wanted to figure out whether the story was as straight as it seemed. It's a, it's a, it's probably an interesting revisional history. It's like me saying I knew everything would go well in my life all all to this time or something. Yeah, Maybe yeah. I don't know when you when you were four exactly. <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, I called yeah. it. I'm sure there's no writing of that. So, but there is of this, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, what's wrong with the story? Why did John Winthrop really mean by calling the Puritan outpost in New England a city on a hill? Well, there are all kinds of really really fascinating things wrong with the story. Uh, the first one, which can throw you back a little bit, is that John Winthrop um, never mentioned writing it. Um, he kept a very, very detailed journal um, through these uh, first years of the uh, of the uh, New England settlement, and he never mentions it. He actually never mentions the term city on a hill again. Um, and nobody remembers hearing the sermon. Hmm. Um, so a lot of us, when we begin thinking about this, we First comes a skeptical question. Did, did Winthrop really write such a thing? Was, is it a later myth? Well, it, it does exist. There's one copy at the New York Historical Society, even though it's not in John Winthrop's handwriting. Um, and there's some correspondence, very little bit of correspondence. And we know that the words are close enough to some other things that Winthrop wrote about. But the idea that it was famous in his time is, is the first part of the myth. It, it, was, it was not famous in his time. And it disappears. It's a real lost and found story. The manuscript doesn't turn up in the New York Historical Society until the very first part of the 19th century. That's, that's 300, almost 300 years after it was delivered. And then when it turns up, nobody pays any attention to it at all. It was printed in 1839. Nobody pays any attention to it at all. It doesn't come into the history books until the 1970s. And then not in a big way until Ronald Reagan began to use it in the 1980s. So it's a really modern invention taken off from something that did happen, but wasn't famous in its time. And I think you have a picture of it here in your book, don't you? Let me yeah. see if I can get that yeah. on the right camera. And uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, so so it, 
was it when Ronald Reagan discovered it? Was it in the was it in the historical departments or was it just running around? No, you can find it now on the New York Historical Society website. You can see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see uh, try to read the 17th century handwriting if you're really button <laughs> yeah. for a kind of punishment. Um, you can uh, find on the New York Historical Society website a transcription. You can find a much better transcription actually in the back pages of this my own book um, mm-hmm. as a city on the hill which is the the most accurate and easiest to understand transcription we've got of the thing uh, but there had been uh, uh, in the 1950s a few historians had begun to notice it Chris. so i think the you asked earlier and we'll come back to ronald reagan uh whether his speechwriters invented the phrase for him in fact he found it on his own um back when he was governor of california probably in um one of the standard books, probably in Dan Borston's uh, book called The Americans, where it was on the second page. Hmm. So we know he, he, we had a president who at least read to the second page of books. That's kind of interesting. That's historical. <laughs> <laughs> he, he loved history. He was a real historical president. He and that's used great. it for his own purposes. But We need more it. of those. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's the first thing that's wrong with it. Is that the thing is, a, it's a lost and found story. And hmm. the lost is, is, goes on for centuries and centuries. And then the finding is, is, you know, sort of inventing of importance for this document that it never had. But the, the second part of what's wrong with it is, I think, even more important for us to get our heads around. Because the, the document, the sermon, if it was a sermon or the, or the piece of writing, uh, whatever it was, is about love. It's not about America. The city on the hill is a, is a phrase from the, from the Bible, as most of those who are listening to this will know. It's out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to his followers, you shall be as a city upon a hill. America is no long, nowhere in, in that uh, phrase. And um, it's not clear that Tom Winthrop was thinking about America. What he was talking about was that particular group of Puritans that came to Massachusetts in the early 17th century, uh, fleeing, Massachusetts, fleeing England, not because they were so radically persecuted, but because they thought the wrath of God was going to fall down upon England and they better get out and form a more pure society somewhere else. And they chose Massachusetts uh, because by chance they had a, a, a sort of a charter, not that the king had any right to give them a charter, but nonetheless, they had one. Um, and what he says in that um, document is that we are in a covenant with God and the terms of those covenant is that we must love each other we must care for each other. We must practice charity. That's why the thing is called the model of Christian charity, which means the essence of Christian charity. We have to, these are his words, we have to mourn together, labor and suffer together as members of the same body. We must put aside selfishness. We must forgive debts. We must take care of the poor. We must get rid of economic calculation. And if we do, if we do, we will be, uh, uh, others will speak well of our society. But if we deal falsely with God in his work, that's what he says now, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. We will be consumed out of the good land, whither we are going. We are going to have the same fate that he feared was going to happen to England. Um, so the, his notion of City on the Hill was not that everybody was paying attention to the success of this new proposition, but that everybody was waiting for it to, for it to fail. Wow. If being on City of Hill meant you were conspicuous, you were naked to the observation of others. You were naked even to the, to the feelings of your own self. Um, and that it was all conditional, that mm. you had to live up to the contract or else, or else curtains. So if I understand you correctly, the city on the hill didn't mean that we were going to be this perfect, beautiful object. What he was doing was saying, you have two choices, and either way, people are going to see you for whichever path you follow? Yes, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Very interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, that's really interesting. And, you know, I love the part where he talks about love and, and everything else. I mean, if anything, we should have politicians vaulting that part of the text rather than <laughs> rather than the city on the hill, you know. But I guess maybe that makes a better catchphrase uh, on the uh, on the Twitter feeds or something. I don't know. Um, you know, it's got that, you know, uh, shining on the hill. Um, but seriously, but, you know, I, I don't know, maybe – uh, you know, love doesn't sell well to either much in the world. I mean, we don't have a lot of people running around going kumbaya. It seems like division is is the great way of of many politicians. You know, on both sides uh, over the years. Let's put over the decades actually 
um, or hundreds of years. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting. I, I love that you brought that to the forefront because, because it seems to me that's the real meat of the text uh, of, yeah. of, of, of the, the fallacy of it. Um, so the Puritans weren't escaping uh, persecution. They just felt like, did they feel like there was going to be like a, sort of, uh, I don't know, second coming, Armageddon, rain, hell rain down, or they just felt like uh, uh, Ingle was becoming Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that, and they were just escaping it? Some of them thought uh, the second coming might might arrive. Um, uh-huh. Some of them, um, you know, that's that's been a long, long tradition in Christianity. Uh, but most of them really feared a kind of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, their their friends, their neighbors, their fellow Puritans in, in England, 10 years after this group went to New England, um, they they start a revolution. They um, they throw out the bishops. They change the liturgy. They they try to purify the the religious religious practices. They try to purify morals. They try the king. They execute the king. They, they make one of the first modern revolutions uh, to try to make a pure society in England. So in some ways, these Americans are the much more cautious types. They they even when they're being asked to come back and join the revolution in England, they want to stay and create this sort of island of what they hoped might be a more pure society. The Puritan effect on American morals and ideals, there's stuff I've read over time, is the, that's one of the problems that goes through our effects of society today, the Puritan I mean, ideals. Uh, some people say the Puritanization of, of color. Um, it, do, do you really feel, it, from what you've studied about the Puritans, that that runs that thread runs as an effect on this country's morals and, uh, or it's it's a uh, uh, amorality or or what it thinks of itself as to what it really is? Well, the, the, there's certainly a very very powerful impact over time. Uh, the the Puritans themselves change um, their. Uh, New England society changes. New England society becomes much more mercantile, finally. Um, the uh, Puritans uh, become deeply involved in, in transatlantic commerce, and including the slave trade, as everybody else in uh, British North America. Um, but um, through the 19th century, you would have noticed a, a really pronounced difference between the rest of the country and New England. Uh, laws were stricter. Sabbath laws were stricter. Drinking laws were stricter. Um, at the same time, you would have found some of the great universities in the country um, in New England. So that both valued the life of the mind um, and a questioning life of the mind. At the same time, um, it was puritanical, as, as we, uh, we say now. It's a very complicated, very interesting part of American culture. Uh, and, and until uh, the 20th century, a very distinct part. Interesting. At the beginnings of this nation... So, Dan, uh, in the book, you talk about how Americans didn't talk of themselves as a city on a hill before the Second World War. Does that mean they didn't think of themselves uh, as, as a people with a special mission in history? Um, good question, Chris. Um, they, uh, two parts of it. The first part was, was really uh, was a surprise, even though the few other scholars had found the record, and I should have trusted them more than I, more than I did. But nowadays, we've got... Um, uh, word search engines that are uh, incredibly uh, powerful in a way that when I began teaching history and writing history w- weren't available at all. And if you uh, are, have the privilege to be connected with a major research library, you can search almost anything in print, um, not just the Google books, which are only a fraction of what's out there. You can search newspapers and you can find the word city on a hill or the phrase city on a hill everywhere. It's applied to everything. It's applied to colleges. It's applied to, to particularly uh, uh, model cities. It's applied to anything with an influence. So, um, I found a wonderful example of somebody saying that, that uh, uh, breweries, beer factories, were cities on the hill because they spread their noxious moral sin out all over the countryside. Uh, I'm drinking some coffee right now that's my city on the hill. There you go. And there was um, even a TV show made with the name City. <laughs> it can be used for anything. Yeah. And most of all, it was used for uh, Christian believers to talk about themselves. We are a city on a hill. That's the biblical use of the thing. I'm going to start wasn't. walking around and claiming it every day. There you go. How are you doing, Chris? I'm just sitting here in my city on the hill. <laughs> yeah, there you go. What it wasn't connected with was America. That's the, that's the startling uh, a thing. Um, it's... So when the second part of that question, when Americans wanted to puff themselves up with pride, and people do, 
um, when they wanted to talk about the specialness of American history, when they wanted to talk about their special role in, in, um, in the future, um, if they didn't use the city on the hill language, and if they never heard of Winthrop uh, in this regard, they knew of Winthrop in other regards, they didn't know about this, this uh, speech and this use. Uh, what, did, what did they say? Well, they talked about their, their God-given destiny. They talked about their manifest destiny, as we talked about in the pre-show conversation. Uh, they talked about their mission in the world. They talked about the need to civilize less civilized peoples. Uh, they need, they uh, talked about uh, their, uh, like Woodrow Wilson did, in um, a crusade for liberty and freedom and order and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so they had lots of ways of, of thinking of themselves as an important nation, even long before they were truly an important nation at all. Um, but what's really fascinating is that the language of national specialness, the language that we are like no other nation, is actually universal. Yeah. Almost all nations say nobody's like us in the world. We're, we're, we're just better. We're more unique. We're more unique. Than, we're unique. Um, we, we have a destiny like no other nation. We've got God on our side. Um, and so in some ways, the Americans just grabbed onto this traveling that language of nationalism and used it. Hmm. One of the, one of the uh, um, endings of one of those chapters is, uh, takes a poem written by a, a, a nurse uh, in this First World War when, when soldiers were dying in the trenches and the war was going nowhere. It's one of the bloodiest and most dispiriting wars in modern history, that, um, uh, even more so than the Vietnam War for Americans um, and, and others in, in, the, uh, in Europe. And um, she says, it's a perfect place for Jehovah. Where is he? All the nations think God is on their side, every single one of them. And here in the trenches, he's not to be found anywhere. Uh, but the first part of that, that all the nations went to war, thinking that they had God on their side. Uh, the Americans were no different from everybody else. So uh, they didn't need Winthrop. They didn't need something out of the New England past. Uh, they just borrowed their own national rhetoric. You know, you said something really, uh, really uh... Uh, just beautiful at the beginning of the show. I mean, you, you put into context what people think about their countries, you know, and the collection of ideas, because that's really all it is. I mean, there's a, there's a paper somewhere, a couple of papers somewhere uh, in a museum, but really, I mean, we're the ever evolving context of this argument of what America is and what it should be. And, and, uh, and a lot of times uh, in our blind spots or what James Baldwin called the lie, um, and Eddie Glaude Jr. talked a lot about his book, The Lie, and expanded on it. Um, Manifest Destiny, of course, is the same way. You know, the, 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 the irony has always been, especially with people like me or atheists, is that there's been a lot of murder and killing in the name of God. And it's, it's interesting how what you, where you're talking about is uh, a lot of people don't get outside of that of that nationalism and that probably tribalism is the cavemen talk on it um, of, of, of aligning to a flag instead of humanity, which is something I've always been interested in studying. Cause I'm a big believer in being a, in humanity, John Lennon's song, imagine being a citizen of the world, as opposed to, you know, being like, this is my country, but I, I do, I'm proud of my country. But yeah, as I went through, as I was going through research on your book, it drew me into American exceptionalism. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was looking at different stuff where we refer to different other countries or governments as godless societies. When, you know, like what you just said, um, every society seems esteemed by God and whatever its iteration of, you know, there's been 3,000 gods invented by humans across uh, its, its span. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be more next week. Um, and and so it's interesting that we've, we're always utilizing this as instead of an agent for love as a weapon. So there's that. You know, th this was just to jump ahead of our story a little bit, but when uh, Barack Obama was um, on one of his uh, uh, state tours through through Europe, um, he was asked um, whether he believed in American exceptionalism. That was a very loaded question at that moment. We can come back to that if you want. And he says, um, yeah, um, I, I think most people believe in exceptionalism. Uh, the, the Brits believe in British exceptionalism, and the Belgians believe in Belgian exceptionalism, and the French believe in French exceptionalism. And then he said, but 
I believe in America is, is really the most extraordinary country on the earth. And he went on to talk about freedoms and possibilities and to make his case for the argument that might be America. Uh, but the conservative press took him to the cleaners for even imagining that the British or the Belgian or the French exceptionalism was comparable to American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, John Bolton said um, he's not really an American. Uh, he wrote in um, in one of the blogs that he's a he's a citizen of the world, and that was not a good thing in Bolton's mind. Now, Bolton said that about Obama that he was a citizen of the world. Yep. Yeah, I read John Bolton's book. The guy's a traitor, um, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the but I did read his book. It was kind of interesting, but it was a very selfish uh, thing that it, I felt he was on. But that's another story. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so it, it is interesting to me because I've studied religion. I've studied why people believe stuff all their lives. And, and I've looked at the horror show of, of what people have done in the name of uh, religion or God. Um, and I imagine, you know, a lot of times, the, you know, people have often said to me, if, if we could have world peace, uh, that'd be great. And I'd be like, you know, you get world peace, you kill all the humans because human nature is the problem in itself. And you can't even really say religion or God is the problem. It's just the weapon that we wield as the excuse for reason for being a murderer. Um, you know, when we go into countries that we call godless and we start destroying everything. Um, but I diverge. So you diverge. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, there's, there's uh, what I love about this history and what you've written and everything else is this is all part of a massive fabric of everything and what people use to push their agendas or their thought process or their belief systems. Like what you talked about in the beginning of, of the show of uh, the idealism of, of a country and, and, the, and then the perception of whether or not it's true or not. Um, so uh, how did Winthrop get back into the picture? Who promoted him as America's founder? Um, well, let me just backtrack if you're sure. going to use this piece of, of the show, Chris, um, because coming out of New England, um, you can find um, uh, statements of manifest destiny, though uh, Southern slaveholders were um, at least as um, and, uh, deep into the manifest destiny idea as were the New Englanders. Um, you can also find a lot of moral reform coming out of, of that same Puritan roots, anti-slavery, women's suffrage, um, education, the first public schools are founded in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. Um, attempts never as good as they should be to care for the poor. So we don't want to, we don't want to write off um, religion as, as uh, one-dimensional. It is, it is the sure. ways in which people are empowered. They're empowered in terrible ways, terrifying ways, and they're empowered in quite wonderful ways at the, at the same time. Um, and New England is, is probably, uh, for a long while, the most religious part of the of the of the country, um, but who promoted uh, Winthrop as the uh, founder? Well, some some New Englanders had been trying to say to anybody who would listen to them that they were the most important part of the nation. Um, they that young now famous uh, French writer Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States and he he was taken in by the Boston elite who told him that we're the beginnings of America. It all happened here, and he actually repeats it in uh, Democracy in America. But he didn't know about Winthrop. But it was in the, after the Second World War, and in the course of the Second World War, when the whole balance of world power changed so radically that the city upon the hill phrase began to take on a different uh, idea. And what I mean by that is, before this, the uh, Second World War, the United States had the biggest economy in the world. It was a magnet for immigrants until immigration was closed in 1924. Um, but it, it was a real world, world uh, power. Uh, after 1945, it was the only world power. All the na- great nations of Europe had been devastated by the war, truly devastated by the war. And the Soviet Union um, simply wasn't a match to the United States of America in terms of its economy, in terms of its attraction for uh, for the rest of the world, though they tried very hard, of course, to to uh, promote a different kind of politics than the United States and promote revolutionary politics around the world. Still, the U.S. is left standing uh, as all the other giants uh, either fall or are cri- crippled around it. And so the idea that we are all that's left, we have to be the city on the hill. Um, help people go back and try and refine this phrase that the historians had begun to notice. They'd begun to write some essays on it and say, yes, that's who we are. 
and the, and go back to where I started. That's who we always have been. We just have our moment of realization now. Yeah. Are we going to continue to be the city on the hill with the rise of China? I mean, China's going to beat us in in economy eventually. They were supposed to be beating us, I think, in 2025, but there may be some delay with what we just what we're going through right now with coronavirus. But but does that take away from us being the shining city on the hill? Or because I'm well, certainly trying to grab the gauntlet of of claim of exceptionalism. Well, they I mean, sure they already do, but you know what I mean. Once they become the biggest economy. Well, the. Uh... I mean, there's never going to be a moment of asymmetry like the one uh, from, say, 1945 to 1965. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen again. Some people could say that uh, something like that had, had taken place in the, uh, when, when the British Empire grew to its height mm -hmm. in the early part of the 19th century. But for the most part, uh, the world is, is normally uh, multipolar, and it's going to be multipolar in the future. Um, now, what was interesting – I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what was interesting about your book, and I'm flipping back a, a topic um, because you uh, you mentioned it. Uh, when I did get your book, because there's been a lot of talk about Manifest Destiny, Black Lives Matter, the issue of the lie, um, I was kind of under the impression, just from my uninformed self, um, that you know this was some of the beginnings of Manifest Destiny. But you mentioned that Manifest Destiny was actually did come from this era in Boston and and that sort of uh, that sort of thinking. Is that true? Manifest Destiny comes comes really out of the um, a debate over uh, moving American first moving American settlers and moving American troops into uh, the, into Mexico over the mm. Texas annexation, mm. and it was the uh, Southern uh, slave holding Democrats um, who were um, and their allies in the in the North um, who were most behind the idea not just that Texas was a great place for expansion of Americans, not only that, well, the Mexicans weren't using the land properly or all these other kind of stuff, but that God really was pointing his finger right on the map. This belongs to you. This is interesting. This is interesting in, in how that was used. You know, like I mentioned, I, when I got into uh, American exceptionalism, it's amazing how we use that, you know, well, we got to go take care of those godless people and, you know, take their land or or oversee their land or conquer their land. Um, you know, I remember, what was it, George Bush saying, we're going to be, we're going to be arrived as uh, conquerors or whatever. And you're like, what? Yeah. Um, well, that, I mean, that fits the notion that, um, that the United States is, 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 is the envy of every other nation. And I think the, the, the administration in the Bush era was just, was just caught completely dumbfounded by the fact that, that when the American troops came in, they came in so quickly, so militarily, that, that was an easy uh, victory at the outset, that, that they weren't welcomed with open arms. They, they, they somehow thought America was, was a city on a hill, and everyone should recognize it as such. Yeah. And it's interesting how this whole, you know, we've written about your book, this whole thing is attached to this fabric of, of something we have to decide whether it's right or wrong for us or what the real meaning of it is. And I guess that's the involvement of it. Um, how did Ronald Reagan and those who followed him radically change the meaning of city on a hill? Well, I, I told you that Ronald Reagan uh, found those, uh, the words, um, both the positive words about we shall be, uh, the eyes of all people shall be upon us. But he also wrote down in that little note card that he, we can find in his own handwriting down there in the Reagan um, library in California. He wrote down, and if we fail to live up to that promise, we'll be made a story and a byword to the word world. Um, so he had a kind of something not totally different from Winthrop's notion that being a city on a hill was conditional. It meant you were exposed to criticism, you were exposed to scrutiny, that you had to really behave. Um, it wasn't just a, a God-given right. Um, but as he began to use that phrase over and over again, as he began to run for president, he began to discover that the um, conditional part, and we shall be a story and a byword, that God might be angry. We might, we might deserve um, not to be the envy of the world. That, that didn't sell as well. Mm -hmm. And he began to talk about the city on the hill as a place that was lit with almost like Hollywood floodlights. It was a shining city on a hill. Hadn't been for Winthrop at all. Shining was Reagan's word. Mm -hmm. It was, a, it was a, a, almost a, a, like, I think he must have had Disneyland in part of his mind. It was a place of towers and, and um, dazzling promise 
And uh, he packaged that over and over and over again. He packaged it really, really successfully. And this sense, he didn't, he didn't practice uh, an aggressive um, projection of American power, though he certainly was a cold warrior right through the very bottom of his bones. Uh, but he practiced a kind of a, of a uh, extraordinary pride in this imagined city. So let me read you what uh, Peggy Noonan wrote for him. He wasn't writing his speeches at this time. Um, he, in his very last uh, year as, uh, as president, she had him say, and he probably didn't mean uh, that um, he'd thought about the city on the hill all his political life. Not quite true, but thought about it for a long time. And when he thought what it was, he said it was a shining city filled with light, a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get there. Now, compared to America you and I live in at the moment, that's a really extraordinary and hopeful notion of America. Um, and this was one he, he, helped, he helped to sell and helped to sell his own um, uh, use as, as the, when people voted for Reagan, they voted in some ways for this utterly optimistic, shining, confident city. And they did it because they thought it was true. They did it because they hoped it was true. They did it because they feared it might not longer be true. They did it for all those, those reasons. But that's what he made. The, the, the city, which had an element of fear and um, self-scrutiny in it, became a city of just self-congratulation. And they definitely needed it because of what was going on during Carter's administration. I'm not blaming Carter's administration, but we had, you know, we had the oil uh, issues. Uh, the economy was in the toilet. Um, there, was, there was a lot of different things going on. Uh, I believe cities were, you know, rioting or we were having issues there. Um, just it, it seemed like during the Carter administration, there was a lot of challenges. We had the uh, Iranian thing that was going on right as they were leading up to his uh, election. <clears throat> and, and I think a lot of people were lost. I remember the Iranian thing, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the captives. Um, and, and that was a real hard thing to deal with because you're like, why does this little country of Iran have us, you know, uh, have us, you know, uh, up against the vice and we can't seem to do anything with it. Even when we sent helicopters in, you know, that failed. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and so I, you know, a lot of people were probably at their wits end or at, at least, you know, feeling like, you know, something's happened to Americanism or our exceptionalism. And so they probably endeared to that even more. Yep, exactly. And that's where the Winthrop story comes in as far as I, I try to show in, in the book. And I, I do really believe that it's, that it's important because it's, it's one thing to say, we are now the top dog. It's one thing to say, we now have a spectacular uh, nation of which we're deeply, deeply proud. But it's another thing and really even more hubristic thing uh, to say, and we've always been so because John Winthrop at the really very beginnings told us we were. So all of American history sort of, pulls together into this language of pride that, as you say, after the 1970s, Americans, uh, many Americans were really hungry for. Yeah. Um, so what has Donald Trump done with that phrase? <laughs> well, it's really, I, when I started the book, I, I, every, one of the things that's easy to find out is what kind of language have uh, presidential candidates and presidents used um, there's a wonderful website at the University of California at Santa Barbara called the American Presidency Project. You can search any word uh, for any president for any time um, during their presidency or the run-up to the presidency. And so you can quickly find out who used the phrase city on the hill in the way that I've described. And after Reagan, every single, every single candidate for president and every single president uses the phrase. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton says, we are still Ronald Reagan's city on a hill. She, she knows it's no longer Winthrop, it's Ronald Reagan's, um, except Donald Trump. Donald Trump has used that phrase once in what was obviously a prepared speech and never again. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know history and he doesn't care about history. So it's not surprising he doesn't know who John Winthrop was and he doesn't have Reagan's interest in uh, historical quotations and this sort of stuff. But Donald Trump won the election by talking about something radically different. He said America was a disaster. Mm -hmm. Use that word disaster over and over 
and over and over and again. Um, and uh, we can see some of that going on right around us right now. Yeah. Uh, a disaster that only I can fix. Yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're up, we, we lose, we're, everything is, is uh, going wrong. Um, he was the first one to really say, um, we're not a city on a hill at, at all. Um, and he's also the first American president since the Second World War to say the rest of the world is irrelevant to us. That why should we care what the rest of the world thinks? Why should we be the admiration of the world? What's, at what cost does that come? And at a profit loss sort of thing, uh, do we really do, how much do we value the, uh, the opinion of the rest of the world? And for, the, for Trump and many of his closest advisors, the answer is there's not much value that they see in that at all. So he's, he really sort of tried to, to turn his back on the city on the hill as strongly and powerfully as he could. The, um, and that's really interesting what you've said there. Uh, you know, one thing I was going to bring up was the American Carnage speech at, at yeah. his, at his uh, inauguration. And most of us sat around just going, what the hell is he talking about? I mean, George Bush has a quote that someone overheard him say that I don't, I just won't repeat it for YouTube's sake. Um, but uh, uh, like a lot of people just were stunned by the American carnage speech. And right. um, we we're just like, what America are you living in, man? Because uh, we were doing fine up until you. Um, but, you know, I, I just got done. And, and it's really interesting that you bring that up about how he, he hasn't been using that phrase. Um, and, 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 and has been using more of a, I don't know what you, you call it, depressionary darkness. I mean, I think we can easily say Donald Trump isn't a lifter. Uh, he, he, he works by division. Um, I just got done reading Mary Trump's book, and I, I, I vaulted Donald Trump to a god for me during, during you know, 1986. I grew up in that, you know, I, I came of age in that whole uh, junk bond, Ivan Bielski area era of the uh, uh Greed is good. Um, and we should bring you back to talk about your fracture book for that. Um, and uh, so I thought he was a great businessman, you know, based upon the modeling that I would give. And of course, you know, that was the, when his book came out. And then I started reading his following books when he fell. And I think there's one book that he's been taken out of print because it kind of exposed his, his failures uh, and his bankruptcies and, and stuff. Um and oh, just over time, watching him, watching the bankruptcies of the of the junk bond that they made for the uh, Atlantic City casinos, and they kept bankrupting it until finally they kicked the family out. Um, just more and more over the years, I, I saw the truth of what was going on with Donald Trump and his family and, and money. And I thought I had a good grip on him and his psyche to a certain degree. Um, but Mary Trump's book, like one of the things she really nails down is – is that he runs by divisiveness. He rules by divisiveness because of the in the insecurities and and the you know, as you mentioned, he doesn't read, he doesn't educate himself. I mean, he he literally is running most of the distractions he's doing is to keep you from looking at what a, a giant hole he is as a man. Um and uh his need for um you know recognition and and everything else that comes with being a malignant narcissist sociopath and everything else and so it's interesting what you talk about about how he hasn't used it because the juxtaposition of what you said where he says you know we're the greatest country in the world or we're 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 exceptional but screw everyone else you know, like you know there's it's kind of like a different thing it used to be when people quote the city in the hill they'd be like we're the city on the hill so we should be you know trying to be good for everybody he's just like effort you know but we're still exceptional the uh you know there's a really strong contrast um, one of the things i've been interested in all my career is is the language of politics and the shifting language of politics <laughs> because um because it's it's always in motion but um obama was an extraordinary sort of conductor of the word we. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Together we can, we can, we can do this. Americans believe this. Americans don't believe that. It was, it didn't, it didn't work nearly as well as, as he hoped. I'm sure he's a somewhat disappointed man about the way his presidency turned out, but he tried harder than any modern president uh, to say, we together can do this. And that was of course, Hillary Clinton's phrase together. Um, I'm with her, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, um, which is in some ways um, 
close to some of what the Winthrop's model of Christian charity was about. The nation is held together by bonds of, of affection and community and love and uh, care for each other and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Donald Trump uh, is both not interested in any of that language, which he thinks too soft, too uh, unmanly, too whatever. He's also a divider, as you say. He's, he, this is the way he, he got himself um, positioned uh, into, into the election. Um, but also he's, um, he wants to broadcast a nation, uh, an idea of the nation in crisis so he can step in and fix it. Yeah. This, is, this is the would-be strongman. So it's not that we can put the nation back together, but that he can put the nation back together. And we have to give him our ultimate trust and blind faith and plan that he will. Uh, and I think we've heard those sort of room, those run throughs in authoritarianism over the years, uh, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, you know, that sort of thing. I suppose. There's a very strong, there's a very strong element. Yeah, you see a lot of it mirroring. Uh, I remember Venezuela, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, I always forget his name, but he he started the rundown of of Venezuela back in the 80s, I believe it was, early 90s, uh, before Maduro. Um, And and I watched all that thing go on, I'm like, let's see where this guy goes with this, you know. And uh, it's interesting to me, you know, I've studied leadership all my life. I've studied CEOs. I, I studied CEOs to become a CEO, um, and, you know, planning to eventually own my own companies. And so I looked at what leadership was, what leadership did, you know, study a lot of great leaders, uh, you know, Jack Welch of, of GE. I mean, just, just every great leader. And I, and I, of course, thought Trump was at, from his original book, which was fiction, <laughs> Um, according to the ghostwriter wrote it, um, the, and, and so I studied all this stuff. And one of the, one of the things that I believe about, about leading people, whether it's military or anything else, it, you have to set a, a visionary goal, much like you can say a city on a hill or a shining city on a hill. You have to have a bright goal, a dystopian future can, I, I think it only give it drag so far, uh, or, well, actually, maybe not. I mean, Hitler definitely, you know, Hitler started out, uh, you know, saying we're going to do good stuff and we're going to fix things and, and everything else. And then it became this, you know, it just got uglier and uglier and uglier. And there probably was no end to the ugliness un, un, until he was stopped. Um, yeah, they're two very radically different styles of, of, of leadership. And yeah. um, uh, I think what I we say, find is that the the darker version doesn't seem to last very long either in America or in America or in the world or American boardrooms for that matter. Let's hope. Let's hope. I can't well, you know, run a company with this style. <laughs> no, it's very very hard to do. You make a lot of people angry, and um, <laughs> and you don't understand where the anger is coming from. Going to pit the accountants against the salespeople. They're going to go fight. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, the, one of the things I want to make sure we don't uh, lose um, before we have to end this conversation, Chris, is um, one of the things I kept asking myself in writing this book. So you're taking uh, a really iconic piece of American culture, something that we're, that many, many Americans have, have believed, many Americans have thought was really essential to who they were as Americans. We've taken one of the, you know, like a, a mom and apple pie phrase and said, well, it's not at all what you thought it was. Um, and um, so I kept asking myself, well, what good is a Winthrop's word? What good are, are Winthrop's words now for us? And I came away actually with two, two thoughts, both of which do speak to our present moment. Um, one of them was that this, um, the notion of community, care, common bonds of affection and sympathy, they weren't very strong in Puritan uh, New England. And Puritan New Englanders uh, sent the dissenters packing. Uh, they hanged some of those who came back because they refused to leave. Uh, they were intolerant as they could be on the religious front for many, 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 many decades. But among themselves, they practiced an idea of, of uh, mutual care. They were indeed skeptical that the price system alone could do all the work that a community needed to have done. And if that's one of the beginnings, only one of the beginnings, but one of the beginnings of American history, it's worth remembering that. Um, 
the other thing I think that's really important to remember about uh, Winthrop's words is what he asked of the people in uh, Puritan New England was not only that that they behave, um, not only that they do certain kinds of acts, but he asked them to be self-critical about what they were doing. And something we don't see very often now. Um, That is to say, be reflective, to be conscious of the possibility of error, to think over and over again about whether you got it right, um, to, to be critical, self-critical. And I think that's a, um, because that's what being on a sitting on a hill means. It means you're visible to others and you're visible to yourself. And uh, so I love that about, um, the, even if that wasn't what Ronald Reagan found in it, I love it. And I think we could use more of it. I think, <clears throat> I think you've just said something really beautiful that we should also aspire to. And gives me new meaning for the city on the hill, because um, you know for years we've been we've been you know operating as with this American exceptionalism, this manifest destiny, and uh, you know the a hole American, of course, you know who wanders the the planet thinking they're exceptional. And everybody goes, "There's another a hole American," um, and uh, hopefully we're we're in a moment of reckoning that will last in in getting us maybe to thinking about these points where with Black Lives Matter and we're looking at racial injustice and you know as we mentioned earlier every every fissure that we had is now fracturing into giant holes and we're finding that you know all the things we were kind of in denial about or we're kind of like yeah we know there's some problems over there but you know we're the greatest American country in the world. Um, it's the you know coronavirus has just exposed it all like it's just it's just that band hammer from hell that's going yeah let's uh we'll show you you know it's the great equalizer like everybody's everybody's up on the target board um and uh although i should say it is impacting minorities more than it is impacting white people um which is a sad fact and poor people as well um older people as well um but for the most part you know no one no one is seemingly immune from this thing i mean you gotta everyone's kind of losing sleep but i think you're right you said something really beautiful that we need to get back to that point of of being a a society that that reads, educates, that contemplates what's doing. And, and I hope that's what a lot of people are doing with Black Lives Matter. And, and, and a lot of discussions we've actually had, which has been serendipity going back uh, the past month or two since we opened up to book every book uh, author. Um, we used to just do business. Um, but the, the conversation we've been having through this whole thread is this contemplation of who are we and what are we and what does this mean? Even I think the, the coming election is going to be a referendum on whether we're still going to follow the lead of someone who, you know, claims this, this, uh, this dystopia America of, of Armageddon uh, and is, is helping inside it actually right now to make sure that his message follows through to his voters um, or whether we're going to maybe go back to what, what Biden kind of represents of, of, you know, we're better than this, the soul of America. Um, so it's kind of an interesting point. I mean, I think we're kind of at that, that inflection point where we're going to find out where, what this country is about and maybe what we learned or maybe what we haven't learned and we need to get beat over the head some more, maybe. Beating up, being beaten over the head, uh, sometimes clarifies the mind, Chris, sometimes <laughs> it just, it just ends all the, all the nerves that are in there. Uh, so what we have to hope for is, I, I agree with you that this has been a, there's been a moment of, of a real trauma for, uh, for the nation. As, uh, but at the moment, the, the, unfortunately, it has served to, to drive people into their separate bunkers. Mm-hmm. So that the idea that mask wearing is, uh, is a political statement is, is, is that for all you could say about the, the fracturing of, of society and the, from the 70s on, this, this has really caught most of us, I think, by, by surprise. Uh, public health, public um, Safety, these were issues upon which people could come together. So what we need is not only to be beaten on the head by a terrible disease and be beaten on the head by the realization that that terrible disease is, is really uh, got differential impacts on Americans that are, that are uh, with privilege and without privilege. But most importantly, we have to really use it to ask ourselves, okay, what does it take to hold a nation together? What are, what do we need, how do we need to, to do the things that we don't want to do? 
because they're necessary? How do we have conversations across these, these um, silos with people who are so stuck in their, in their um, heads? How do we get ourselves unstuck from our own heads enough to be able to, to, to do that? If we can manage all that, I know I'm speaking utopianly, if we can manage all that, we can make something out of the coronavirus epidemic. And if we can't, it will make something out of us. <laughs> I don't know if that was, but but I love what you said. Um, the uh, you know it's it's interesting. My my hope was for the coronavirus that we would come together. This is the pre mass thing. Uh, but I talked about if you go back to my podcast, I was talking about how it is the great equalizer. Uh, unfortunately, um, and I was hoping that it would bring us together as Americans that we would go. Holy crap, you know, my neighbor, I need to take care of my neighbor as well as I take care of me. Um, and I was hoping that would bring us together. But, of course, the great divider has divided us once again with the mask making it political. Um, the devastation the fallout of this is going to be immense. I mean, some of the scientific numbers say uh, until we get a grasp on this because of our recklessness. And you, you see it on the graphs. And, I mean, other countries right now are having sports and having fun. Um, and, uh, uh, we could be seeing 200, 300,000 deaths, which would be extraordinary and devastating. I, I think, I think we're not really getting it cause we're in the midst of it and there's so much horror around us, but I think eventually we're going to look back or hopefully we'll look back, uh, if we're still here and we go, that was really, that was, that was bad on an extreme that Vietnam and World War II and everything else. So my question to you is, is, and I, I put this to Eddie Glaude Jr., but yours is more pertinent because this exceptionalism or this idealism that we put behind the city on the hill and this this reckless sort of selfish uh, bravado, do we bring this on ourselves? Do we deserve this? Was this our, was this, does, does it take something that's this dark? Do we, do we earn this to, to, to have such a calamity upon us and then handle it so badly that we have to, we have to almost be crushed as a society to wake up. Well, you know, the Puritans would have thought that way and they would have thought that God was going to do the crushing. (laughs) And I don't believe history works that way. I don't think there's a, uh, there's a sort of destiny maker in the sky and looks down and says, you know, you, we, we gave you this test and uh, you particular countries, you did pretty well that, you, the United States, you did really badly. So tough it out. You're going to have all the casualties. I know you didn't mean exactly that, but yeah. I think, I, I, I think what, what it really shows, um, and here maybe you and I disagree a little bit, um, Donald Trump orchestrated something that was already there to be orchestrated, that already, um, whether it was in the form of, of, of you know, resurgent of, of anti-Black sentiment uh, through this white nationalist stuff that we thought had all gone away, uh, whether it was um, simply uh, the, the the defensive mechanisms of people who thought that the, they'd been screwed over by the economy and by globalization and they were just angry at other people around them and were looking for enemies, whether it's the media that, that uh, now enables uh, theories, particularly conspiracy theories, but other um, ways of, of it, it invents enemies. It lives on the construction of enemies, parts yeah. of the media. Um, what Which one of it of these things is involved. It's all, but, but ultimately uh, there was enough fear and anger around to be combustible. Yeah. And if there hadn't been, we, we wouldn't be in the fix we're in. So again, I'm, I'm talking uh, maybe more like a a preacher than I should, but we need to look inside our own selves as a country and um, not blame it all on one person. And it's, um, it's going to be very troubling to figure out how we, how we move back. Yeah, it's, and, and there's a lot to unpack to get back to what many people would call normalization. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like like you mentioned uh, in responding to me on that that the that was a the destiny sort of thing. But just the just the bravado and the selfishness and the the blindness to our own mm-hmm. inequities. Uh, you know, it, it's that person mm-hmm. who's 
who's who walks down. I don't need a mask, you know. And I actually see it in a lot of the Trump voters that are doing the anti-masking thing. You know, they they're they're still punching the American exception on the card. We're Americans. We don't yeah, we need masks, you know. Right. And right. and so thereby, you know, the the stupidity. You know, it's it's the punishment for the stupidity. Um, I've never really been a, especially being an atheist. I've never been a believer when I when I see that dichotomy of when religious people go well god sent the punishment and and then he's going to save us and you're like that's a real sadistic sadomasochistic sort of attitude if you really think about it um but he loves you as george carlin would say <laughs> i should insert that great line from george carlin where he's like god hates you you're evil you're bad you're bitter. but he loves you and he's going to go to hell and he's going to bury you but he loves you um uh, last question for you. Monument, uh, monuments are being uh, overturned, statues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is this a book about tearing down our past, the one you've done for uh, As a City on a Hill? Well, I hope people won't read it that way. Some will. Some will see it as a, as a kind of trashing exercise. Have you been uh, on Fox News with this book yet? <laughs> no, I have not. I have not. I don't know what the so, – some, some interesting conservatives have very had, had reviews from uh, – from, liberal pundits um, who praise it. Um, and uh, I'm very, very pleased uh, by that. But it's also been, been reviewed by some very, very thoughtful conservative pundits um, who uh, res- respond to uh, this sort of more serious, more honest look at our past than, uh, than uh, most, uh, most versions of this story have. And I'm pleased, I'm pleased with that too, because it seems to me that, that the point about looking really honestly and critically and skeptically at some piece of our past. It's not the way we would like it. Um, it's an essential part of what being a, a nation is, is all about. That's why the 1619 Project matters. Mm-hmm. It may not be the only thing you want to say about America, but it's a critically important thing, to, essentially important thing to, to hold in mind about this nation that we live in. That's why the, 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 uh, this moment of hubris in the in the 1950s is important to hang on to not because we need to be proud of it because we need to recognize what it was and what it's what its faults uh, might have been um it's why you know when when people dump statues in the river i hope what they don't are not talking about is forgetting we don't Mm want to forget john c calhoun Mm -hmm. Um, that would be an enormous distortion and a kind of whitewashing of our past we ought to look at John C. Calhoun with new eyes because we now see parts of him that, that his admirers at the time did not see and uh, those who uh, put up those statues in the 1890s did, did not see. So um, uh, I, I have, I'm of two mind about, about tearing down monuments. In some ways it's a very easy thing to do. Um, in some ways it was really easy to discover. Nobody talked about the city on the hill from the 19th century. It took me a couple of days work uh, with all the search engines we've got. That's not the most important part. The important part is what does that mean? Uh, what do we do with the past we have? How do we live with it? How do we improve upon it? Um, how do we um, think without um, fantasy about the America that we've, that we've made? So that's my hope for the book. I love I, that word fantasy because that, that, I think that nails it. I don't know. Maybe I listened to Billy Joel too many times, but but no, it's it's sometimes a fantasy. But but yeah, I mean the the fantasy of American exceptionalism and and our place in the world, <clears throat> and and it's interesting how as as human nature we we go you know we go depend upon whatever country or flag we're territorial flag we're tribalizing under where we go around and bang each other on the head over over you know you're godless I'm I'm I have a god and you not and <laughs> they do. <laughs> you're just lost in the whole uh, the wholeness of it um and and hopefully what you what you said we bring to this discussion we learn and maybe we teach more in where we you know we we look at the ugly aspects of our leaders and we balance them out as more humans as opposed to these vaulted fantasies of of you know this perfect being of andrew jackson or uh, George Washington being this, you know, I could tell no lie, you know, and this the silly stories that we tell uh, about some of our things and we don't talk about the dirty secrets and the, and the things. And so hopefully you're right. I, I agree with you. Um, I'm all for, I, I think the monuments do need to be torn down because a lot of the discussion I've had with, with African-American black friends is, 
is a lot of those were used as symbols of repression. And when they see them, there's a lot of connection to that sort of thing. But I do think they should be put in a museum, um, you know, uh, where we, and in a museum where we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, we talk about how they contributed and then maybe how they weren't so perfect. And maybe that would lead to what you talked about. You, you said a lot of beautiful things in this podcast that I want to go cut pieces out of and, and, uh, and, and remember them. Um, but maybe that would lead us back to the point where we become a, a better society, uh, where we would, you know, like you said, think about stuff and, and consider the good, the bad, the ugly and, and everything that goes on that we'd be introspective in, um, in, in our true place in the world or our true place as Americans or who we really are as a humanity. I don't know. Sounds good to me. Sounds yeah. very good to me. Sounds much better than American carnage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll have to follow up with you after the election and, and decide if we're still deciding on the Hill, I guess. <laughs> okay. We'll talk again. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Uh, well, Dan, uh, give us your plugs so people can look you up on the interwebs. Sure. You can find me at, uh, go through the Princeton University website. Uh, just click on uh, Rogers, R-O-D-G-E-R-S. Got an extra D floating in there. Um, and you'll find the bios and you'll find uh, uh, links to the sorts of things that I've talked about and written. Um, and then um, many of your bookshops and certainly Amazon.com have, have all the books that, uh, that I've done. Um, and I want to make a plug, though I can't do it here as well as I might, Chris, for the kinds of work that my students have done, which is just extraordinary, all over the lot of ideas, uh, arguments, um, convictions, changes in them. Uh, they have been an extraordinary a gift to me in terms of what they've taught me, and they've been a gift to uh, the reading public in terms of what they've they printed. So uh, you won't find those so easily, but um, keep your eyes open. That's an awesome plug. And hopefully those young people are going to change, help us change the world to a better place and less carnage. <laughs> Let's hope. There we go. Hope is hope. sounds like a, was that Obama? Was that hope was Obama? Yeah, um, hope. There you go. I'm seeing the image in my head. Uh, anyway, guys, uh, thanks for being on the show, uh, Dan. You've really enlightened us with a lot of stuff, and you've said some really eloquently beautiful things uh, that have inspired me and actually made me think about this phrase. And instead of coming away from it as like, well, that really wasn't what it meant, you've actually given me some new meaning or given us some new meaning to what this phrase really means and, and, and some uh, ability to have some introspection as to, as to really what it's about and hopefully – uh, become less braggadocio over, you know, what American is or American exceptional is and really start questioning, you know, who are we and what we're about? And hopefully we do that with the monuments as well. Um, so thanks to Dan for being on the show. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on YouTube. If you want to see the video version of this, you can see it on YouTube. It's really cool technology. Or, you know, you can listen to the audio version, all of our different things. You'll also find us on book author podcast, Chris Foss podcast as well. Uh, be sure to give Give us a like on YouTube, and then if you can, give us a great five-star referral on iTunes. Thank you to the people who have been doing that lately. We certainly appreciate that. Helps get that uh, spread out there a lot more. I don't ask for it much, but we're asking for it a lot lately so we can get more eyeballs on the show. Uh, anyway, guys, be safe, wear your mask, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris.